From Stockholm Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, this is The LPV Show, a weekly discussion from the world of photography and photo books. Here is your host, Brian Formals. How's it going, photography lovers? You're listening to The LPV Show. I'm Brian Formals. I'm Tom Starkweather. And we are uh, communicating over Skype for this introduction. I wasn't able to make it down to Bushwick Studios, so uh, we're going to try something a little different here. I, I can still hear you loud and clear, Brian. <laughs> That's all that really matters, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about tonight's episode. We had Pete Brook of Prison Photography come on, and we talked about his, his amazing work uh, that he's doing, uh, curating shows like Prison Obscura, and obviously all the interviews and articles that he's writing for his website. Um, we also got a chance to talk about Peter Van Ackmel's Disco Night 9-11, which is an amazing book, and it made quite an impression on you, Tom, didn't it? It did. It was one of those books I was glad you you left here for a week for me to check out. And I actually had a chance to actually read the stories that went along with the photos. And it's typically not something I get into with photo books, or it isn't used quite in the way that he did. But the stories about coming back home for some of these soldiers really was illuminating. It's, yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult book, and like Peter really combines the the writing skills and the f- amazing photography, and then obviously the political consciousness too to cover such a uh, difficult task. And it was you know he was a young man when all this started too, so you have that coming of age aspect as well too. And I right. thought I thought it was really cool, Tom, that you said uh, a couple of your f- friends or the people that stopped by would check it out as well too. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, one of them was kind of taken by it so much that when we were walking to go get some lunch, he kept talking about it. It kind of made him a little depressed. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's tough. No, I don't. I think like we uh, tend to tune out, you know, the the ramifications of the war. So to have this kind of put right back in your face, it's not easy to think about. It makes you makes everything a little more real. Yeah, yeah. So I was really happy we were able to discuss discuss that book. I worked with was lucky enough to work with Peter on photographer sketchbooks, um, and that was just like a, an amazing experience because it's rare that you get to see an inside glimpse into that kind of book and all the permutations it goes through before it's you know ready ready for the public. And he he's really the real deal. He's just so smart and so in tune with. Um, you know, what's going on in the world that it was, you know, it's just amazing to work with him. And it was great to have someone like Pete to talk with on this book, too, because, you know, man, I, I really felt a little intimidated uh, talking to him a little bit of I was uh, uh, intellectually outweighed you know, by somebody like Pete Brook. But, you know, that's you have some why, good questions. Uh, that's why we have guys like him on, on the show, you know, so it was it was amazing. And I hope everyone enjoys our conversation. I just want to remind everyone, uh, you can follow along on Tumblr. It's blog.lpvshow.com. We share behind-the-scenes photos, the book spreads, um, and then you know some, some samples from photographers, and then obvious as well as each episode will get thrown up there. We're also on Instagram, LPV Show, sharing photos. On Twitter, sharing links and photos. And um, yeah, I hope you, you all follow along and, and enjoy what we're up to and you know, thanks, thanks for tuning in. And now here's our conversation with Pete Brook. Well, we're uh, here in Bushwick at 
Stockholm Studios. It's February 7th, 2015. We've got a great guest today, Pete Brook. Thanks for showing up, Pete. Hey. Last minute. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I bumped into you last night. Yeah, we ran into each other at the photo salon, photo book salon, and I was like, hey man, you should have told me you were in town. Actually, I should have known you were in town. But I was like, yeah, we would have you on the podcast. And Pete was like, well, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm free, but I got to check with Tom since, I think since he runs the show, you know. Our first morning show. First morning show, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, to get oh. you out of bed on a Saturday. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, no. we've got our tea, and we're uh, ready, to, ready to rock and roll, I think. So I just want to read, and this is something I haven't really done in the past, but I want to read just uh, this this bio of you so people kind of... Even if you do that, it might not make sense to anyone what it is. Oh, I think they will. So, so Pete Brook is a freelance writer and curator interested in social justice and the politics of visual culture. He writes and edits Prison Photography, a website that analyzes imagery produced within and about prisons with focus on the American prison industrial complex. Prison Photography has been recognized as one of the best photography blogs by Life.com, the British Journal of Photography, and the Daily Beast, as well as Brian Formals, who says it's one of the best. <laughs> so, um, and right now you're in town because the current show that you're curating, Prison Obscura, which is has been like a traveling, roaming show, is now on display at Parsons, right? Right. And so again, I want to read just a little bit about Prison Obscura. We, we normally a little bit more chatty and conversational, but I think getting the context is kind of important with what you're doing here. Not that it's not important. Yeah. So curated by prison photography editor Pete Brook, Prison Obscura presents rarely seen vernacular surveillance, evidentiary, and prison-made photographs shedding light on the prison industrial complex. Why do taxpaying, prison-funded citizens rarely get the chance to see such images? And what roles do these pictures play for those within the system? With stark aesthetic detail and meticulous documentation, Prison Obscura builds the case that Americans must come face to face with these images and imaging technologies, both to grasp the cancerous proliferation of the US prison system and to connect with those uh, it confines. So. I think in the original copy I said tumorous proliferation, but that got changed to cancerous. <laughs> tumorous, yeah. you, you, you pick whichever one sounds harshest, and, yeah. and that's the one we'll use as a descriptor. So obviously your your jam is is prisons are bad. Prisons, prisons okay. are bad, and particularly the American prison system. And I think one one interesting thing for me is it wasn't anything I never I I didn't think too much about other than the bad people are in jail, right? And then you know I started following your blog and you you get more into it. And it seems with the rise of your blog in these last I don't know what five or six years, it seems to be that there is. Maybe it's just a, some sort of bias, but I do see more about prisons and the prison industrial complex in the mainstream news. Have you noticed that as well? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, I got interested in prisons back in 2004, but I didn't sort of like conceive of and reason and even be prepared to do prison photography until late 2008. Um, and that was also right when the economic crash happened. You know, Bush was leaving office, Obama was coming in. and. You know, not out of any moral enlightenment, more out of fiscal necessity, people started having conversations about whether we should be funding prisons to the degree that we do. So it's all about economics and not about social policy. But as reformers, we take any chance we get. And so activists and reformers inserted themselves into the conversation at that point. And now we have politicians who aren't as scared and on both sides of the aisle 
will say things other than the usual tough on crime rhetoric. So you're right, and I think NPR, if that's a, a bellwether or some sort of measurement, the frequency of prisons on stories, on, of stories on prisons that they do is sort of indicative of a wider public awareness. And what about, do you, have you seen, because I know California, and I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't do my research, but they just passed a law on, in the last election that was yeah. to do with sentencing, right? Mm -hmm. Can you, since you can probably speak more Articulately, because I live there. Yes. Yeah. I so, do. what was the? Can you what? Just explain the gist of the reform there for us. Um, so, Prop Forty Seven proposed that um, almost a dozen crimes be reclassified, downgraded from felony to misdemeanor. Right. So, they're all non-violent crimes. The majority of them were drugs possession um, or. Uh, possession with intent to deal, and the other ones were property, petty, uh, petty theft, mm -hmm. uh, but property crimes, $950 and below. And it was designed to be retroactive. And so, especially in a time when a lot of people are on like the third strike, uh -huh. um, it meant that if it passed, people would be released from prison, because uh -huh. automatically the sentences would be reduced, and going forward, fewer people would be sent to prison or to jail. Um, and alternatives to incarceration would be used. Um, I think it's pretty significant that it was a ballot initiative. Mm -hmm. It's the people that decided, and they decided by a big margin. It was almost 60% in favor. So it wasn't the, polit the politicians sponsored the bill, but that was only a handful and not like the hundreds that are in Sacramento. Um, and so where California led all the bad policy 25, 30, 35 years ago, mm -hmm. it seems to be leading the swing back, the necessary swing back, and there's a lot of work still to be done. Right. Prop 47 is only the beginning. And are there, I mean, obviously do you think there'll be other states to follow suit or other kind of things in the works? One hopes. I mean, with inflation, $950 isn't that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but laws don't change uh, along with inflation. Um, so I hope the bigger states, um, where the reformers have more of a foothold, New York would be one of those, uh -huh. can do something similar to Prop 47. But I am gonna say this, and I have to be careful because like, we wanna celebrate victories. Uh -huh. People have been released from prison and there's less crime, you know, which is always the case um, when sensible on crime policies are put through. Right. Um, less incarceration means less crime in society as a whole. Um, it's, it's, it seems counterintuitive, but it's difficult to get hold of. Um, but the way Prop 47 was set up is they forecast the number of people who wouldn't be going to prison. So they forecast savings, money not being spent on corrections, mm -hmm. and then they earmarked that cash for other things. So 10% was going to go to victims' rights groups, 25% uh -huh. was going to go to state education, um, high school, and the other 65% was going to go to drug rehabilitation and um, alternatives to incarceration, treatments, right? right? Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that it's a, effectively a branch of the Department of Corrections <laughs> that is managing that money. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been the real tussle amongst activist groups leading up to Prop 47. It was like, we want to see less people in prison, but we don't want to see an expansion <laughs> right. of, of the California Department of Corrections and their, and their allies in controlling that cash because you know it was only 2011 where the Supreme Court of America ruled that California couldn't adequately take care of its prisoners right. and there was preventable deaths occurring hmm. and the Eighth Amendment rights of 
all prisoners. And that was, that was, what was the case? It was Brown versus... Brown versus Plata. And you, so what images, what is in the show? I mean, I got to go see the show. I missed the opening. But what images do you have from that case that is in the show? Um, it's show? some images made by the state going as far back as 2008, uh-huh. where they're arguing their case. Because it was the state that took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. They challenged earlier rulings, which said um, they had to reduce prison population. And then a lot of photographs from the expert testimony, expert mm-hmm. declarations in favor of the prisoners, the class action right. lawsuit. Um, so it's, it's about 200 images in all. And the low res JPEGs, um, a lot of them is just PDFs that are printed oh, off. Nice. You know, you nice, know. nice. I think it's important that I bring that into an yeah. art and gallery setting and, and talk about what image apps actually do. And so, don't get caught up so how did this? How did Prison Obscura come about? When did you kind of conceive of it, and was it? Um, I met a guy called Matthew Seamus Callanan, who runs the gallery spaces at Haverford College. I met him at a co- prison panel at a conference in mm-hmm. Portland in 2012, and about six months afterwards, I just got an email out of the blue, and he said, "I'm interested in what you're doing. Do you think there's an exhibition format for?" for it and I was about ready you know Um, and I thought it would be a good exercise to um, bracket years of research and put myself on the line and and, and state which which bodies of work which types of Mm -hmm. images I thought were most instructive and most instructive to us outside of prisons and most beneficial to people inside of prisons. Right. Because there's no presumption that photography helps prisoners, you know. Right, right. Um, and so Haverford College, just outside of Philly in Pennsylvania, commissioned the show and it opened in January of last year, of 2014. And then it's been to a couple of other venues this year and Parsons is the fourth venue. Wow, that's amazing. So, and one thing that kind of seems important to what you're doing too is it's not all, obviously you like, you promote and you talk to professional photographers and people that, you know, are in the documentary tradition and doing what we would say classical kind of documentary work with a 20, 21st century spin on or whatever. But it's also the vernacular too is very important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, do you, how do you find that balance between yeah. Yes, these, these professional photographers are doing amazing work, but that's not the entire yeah. story. That's not the only perspective. And I mean, obviously, I think this runs in line with a lot of stuff that's happening these days in photography overall with the emergence of so much vernacular photography on the web. and So how do you blend all that and f- kind of figure out? Well, I like your question. I think you already know the answer because you're a smart guy. Um, I mean, talking to only photographers would get boring, right? It'd become right. the same conversation. Right. Um, it also allows me um, more agency to explore um, images that might not ha- the, the author might not even be known, um, which is the case with evidentiary images. Um, but I think you have to look at all types of um, photography coming out of the American prison system in order to draw reliable conclusions about the system itself and where the power lies. And so, you know, Prison Obscura in particular is is a reaction to the idea that if a photographer goes into a prison, they are there by invitation and they are only allowed to see what the prison administration mm-hmm. wants them to see. And so it could be said that they are an extension of the prison's power 
So as a thought experiment, I ran with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not disparaging the documentary tradition, I think it's great, but it's, right. it's one part of, of many in our visual landscape. Um, and so in Prison Obscura, I turn away from documentary and I look at all the other types. Um, because I think maybe that's done less often right. um, by people generally. Right. Um, and you know, so an example in the show would be um, the prison visiting room portraits. Mm-hmm. After the mugshot, that's like the only opportunity that prisoners have really of self-representation. Mm-hmm. And then it's like a very mediated, controlled right. form. Um, but by virtue of that fact alone, that's the only type of photograph they're having made of themselves while they're in, incarcerated. Um, makes uh, them valuable in the sort of like discussions and lessons right. to be learned from looking right. at them. Right. So I just want to backtrack just a little bit here because you have your master's in art history, right? So you come from yeah. studying art history. You, yeah. That's before, before any of the social actors in the prisons, you were right, into yeah. the art, into the visual art. So you, I mean, you know you have your solid footing on, on the history yeah. and stuff as well too. So at what point do you go from you getting your master's in art history to the American prison set, you know what I mean? Where does that, how did that, your consciousness about this rise, where did, uh-huh. what was, was there like an instigating piece of literature that you read or, or something that you saw in the news or where, where did it come from? I'll try and keep it brief for the sanity <laughs> of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so my undergrad was art history, but because I went to like a weird, like centuries old posh uh, Scottish university, it was actually a master's, it was a four year degree. Uh-huh. Um, and I did a year abroad in Santa Cruz, California. Um, I met a young lady then, and in 2004, when I was back in the UK doing my second master's in museum studies, uh-huh. I wanted an excuse to get to California. I found out about the San Quentin Prison Museum. I decided that I would analyze that. In order to evaluate the narrative, uh, this, it's a very strange little weird museum just uh-huh. inside the gates of San Quentin, which is like 160 plus years old uh-huh. now. In order to evaluate the narrative, I had to just read up on what was actually happening. And in 2004 in California, things were absolutely desperate. Uh Um, The growth had been rampant. The prison guards union were just riding roughshod over all of the constituents. Um, It it was absolutely shocking. And so I was angry because I'd never heard about this at all. And I didn't think that I was... um, blind or I had my head in the sand right. and I was like well if I've not heard about it maybe other people haven't heard about it um, and then I was like but perhaps that's not accidental perhaps right, that's right, right. yeah absolutely <laughs> perhaps it's designed yeah. Yeah. and so 2004 was the moment when I was like this is my issue because I think what it says is a lot about society mm, yes. it relates to media it relates to messaging it relates to politics it relates to sort of like the rhetoric we have towards communities in you know, the land of the free, what we say and what we, how far we're willing to go and, and what we're willing to do. And it's about race and it's about inequality and it's about poverty and it's about education, it's about opportunity. So I was like, that's, prisons are like the prism through which I'll look at American <laughs> exactly, society. Exactly. Um, but there was a lot of really good journalists and activists talking and writing about it back then. And then in, um, when I first moved to America, I worked for two years for a private foundation as a photo researcher. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was relatively new to photography, um, but the job allowed me to teach myself <laughs> a hell of a lot yeah. about the history, about the tradition, about the main movers and shakers, uh-huh. about the institutions. 
And then in 2008, um, I decided that it was time to launch Prison Photography with the idea that maybe images would induct people into the conversation right. when they wouldn't be interested by other types of medium. Like they, right. wouldn't be, they wouldn't be reading a paper or a news article. Um, so that was, I felt it was novel enough that I could add something different to the reform conversation. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the, the blog too, was one of those, I mean, a lot of documentary, take the broad look at documentary photography or fine art photography, or how I like to say, it's like most bloggers are like, stuff that I like, here's what you should see. But you you took on a very specific topic, which I think. Which is also stuff that I liked. Which is stuff that you <laughs> like, right, right. But I think it was interesting that that's, you know, hmm, this is something that you can really kind of do. I don't know if you remember, Brian, about four years after I started the blog, you wrote me an email to explain that now you suddenly understood <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, but I thought Brian was one of my biggest allies and fans. <laughs> right. I thought you'd been with me from the start in terms of like having your head wrapped around why exactly it was I had this strange little niche. Right. No, I mean, no, I think it was, there was what was that article? It was a New Yorker, New Yorker article by Adam Gopnik, I think. That's, That's what right. it was. And I sent it, and it was like, that one, that was kind of when all the information. I mean, I knew the purpose, like the blog, I got it and what you're doing, but I was just like, what's the. It was more about like trying to figure out what was going on with, with yeah. the prison. But what I like is they, you know, it's also it seems like 2008 obviously was like this moment, obviously because of the election of Obama, but also where social media kind of shifted in this different way too. You know, you had the rise of Twitter, and with the rise of Twitter, what you have is a lot of marginalized groups that finally have this voice, and so you had a lot of activism that's come out of Twitter. You know, much to the chagrin of some conservative mm -hmm. or more traditional type people, but you also have these voices that are rising, and a lot of it is social justice activists. Yeah, and that's you know, I started dabbling into that and, and reading a lot of that stuff, and you, all of a sudden you're you're getting information from all these different angles, and it does seem that prison, the prison industrial complex, is kind of at the core of all these other things that are happening as well, too. And it seems like it's such a central issue in like the war on drugs, right? <laughs> or like you said, in um, well, the uh, race issues, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's all right there. So I think that was kind of one of those moments, too. It's like, huh, mm -hmm. you know, this is, this is kind of like maybe the cancer that's eaten away at a lot of what's happening here. So like, I think it was that that kind of. Yeah, I mean, a few things about that. I mean, it does give me great pleasure to retweet something from an activist group that is small and committed and might not be tweeting a dozen times from behind the computer every day like I am mm -hmm. because they're like out on the streets doing or, or lobbying a state capital, right. um, doing like effective work, you know, um, whereas it could be said I'm just a clicktivist behind my screen. <laughs> right, right, um, right. I, I do find it difficult to measure the success of. Um, social media for activists and you're way better positioned because you look at the entire like web landscape um, but it, there's no doubt in terms of being able to control and, and tweak what sort of information is coming to you on your devices it's it's pretty fantastic but even I mean even just with the Ferguson stuff too I mean you had people activists that were almost born in that movement and now they're kind of like leaders yeah um, 
and it just happens just like that, where they are able to centralize all these voices and bring them together. And I mean, again, maybe if, unless you're paying attention to it, it might not. It might if you're just watching the mainstream news and seeing kind of like the standard reportage from. Brian Williams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you're not really going to understand this, but I think that's, I think you are seeing a lot of it kind of like filter up into, especially on the web, um, where you have younger staffs of people, places like BuzzFeed who are very focused on having diverse voices and all sort of things. So I think you are starting to see a little bit of movement, you know. But I want to go and I actually like this. You have a, a little bit of a manifesto. That I think, because I was just going to ask you. you know, I've been wondering what? whether to keep that up or not. Yeah. Well, we'll how about we? We'll pull. I'm going to read. I mean, it read. It. Test me. Actually, we'll make a decision. We'll now. see. We'll maybe. Yeah. If exactly. I should keep it on the website or not. Well, I'll try to deliver it as best as I can, though. <laughs> because I was going to say, why prison for? I mean, you have that literally read right on the site, so I would have felt like a yeah. chump. Like it's right there, Brian. Why don't you? Read it? It's kind of like brilliant naivety. Like I wrote that like yeah. at the very beginning, and it's not changed. Well, I'm not I revisited. It. Yeah. I mean, I just read it today, and I was like, well, that's pretty much it. So. Here, here, here it is. I believe the United States needs to pursue large-scale prison and sentencing reform. We must stop warehousing people and be creative with rehabilitation. Prisons in the U.S. are socially and economically unsustainable. As they exist, prisons are a liability. Often discussions on prison issues are framed incorrectly. Sometimes prisons are ignored. I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think you could maybe smooth out the last couple sentences. Mm -hmm. you know. But I think that's pretty much it, you know. And yeah, I mean, to me, like that's maybe the, explain why they framed incorrectly. And I think the frame, the incorrect framing, is about people talk about them from a position where they hold negative emotions, mm -hmm. either anger, fear, or vengeance. And I don't think there's actually any need for that. I understand right. why that happens, but um, it's not constructive. It's not constructive, no. and it doesn't actually, it doesn't reflect the reality. Yeah, there's some like nasty people in prison, but yeah. they're a fraction of a minority of a fraction. Most people are like old, infirm, um, stupid, young. They they're nowhere near the person they're portrayed to be because mm -hmm. of their worst mistake. They're mentally ill. They're addicted. They're poor. Um, and they're in prison mostly because of a lack of opportunity and, right. and because society has failed them, not necessarily that they have failed society. Yeah, um, I mean, you come out of prison and what options do you really have if you're a felon, you know? What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. How are you going to get hired, you know? Well, I did an interview yesterday yeah. and, and the lady asked, what do I hope comes of prison photography but prison obscure also? I was like, I'm just always looking to like ask people to think more critically about prisons because what prisons state they do, they don't do. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, if we had schools or hospitals that failed to the degree that yeah. prisons did, we'd be up in arms. Um, but they don't rehabilitate. Uh -huh. um, in fact, they send people backwards in most cases because there's, there's very little programming. They're just warehousing folk. Um, and who are they warehousing folk with? They're just throwing all people into like a one solution doesn't fix all building who have all sorts of like d divergent needs and problems uh -huh. that don't get addressed and probably exacerbate one another's problems. Right. Um, and so why are, we, why are we not having that conversation about, well, if prisons aren't doing what they say they do, what are they doing? <laughs> and when you get into that discussion, then you really realize that the t topic is urgent. Right, right. 
There was one of, didn't they just do something on Rikers on solitary confinement of juveniles? Mm -hmm. Wasn't that one they basically said, no, we can't, that's... Yeah, and that's been a, <laughs> that's been a long fight and it's taken yeah. a, a lot of pressure and a lot of effort and a lot of scandal and um, expose, but yeah, um, men and women under the age of 21 will not be held in long-term solitary confinement on Rikers Island. Which is, if you, I don't know how, from everything I've read, I don't know how anyone... By any definition that solitary confinement isn't cruel and unusual. Mm -hmm. There's just no way you can be a rational, enlightened person and say, how is this not? If you, especially you read some of the horrifying studies mm -hmm. that happens even like 24 hours after you're in solitary confinement. Yeah. I mean, it's literally one of the most brutal things you can do to... The piece that everyone should yeah. read is called Hellhole, and it's by Atul Gawende, and it's probably like four or five years old now. Mm -hmm. And it was a piece written for The New Yorker. And he says after three days there is permanent change and damage um, to your brain chemistry um, to a degree similar to that of traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, so, if, yeah, of course it's cool. Yeah. Injury. The UN says anything more than 15 days is torture. Yeah. There's people uh. in this country that have been in solitary confinement for three decades or more. Oh, what? Ooh. Oh, man. And any given day there's... It depends on what definition and parameters you put on um, the definition of solitary. Um, conservatively, there's 20,000 people in solitary on any given day. Um, other estimates go as high as 75,000, 80,000. Because you can be in solitary confinement, but with another person in your cell. Okay. You can still be locked down for 23 hours a day uh -huh. in a windowless cell with someone else. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, what... It, so another thing too is like they're cash cows. Prisons are cash. I mean, economic. They're there to make money. I mean, someone's making money, right? I mean, given what the output is, there's there's an incredible amount of waste as well. Um, yes, but like, I have to encourage people not to get too wound up about private prisons. Uh -huh. Private prisons. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, private prisons are fucked, right? We all right, know this, right? But. Only 10% of prisons only in America are private. 90% uh -huh. of prisons in America is taxpayers' money that's funding them, mm. building them, staffing them. Um, now, a lot of private companies will do the contracts uh -huh. um, for the food and the services, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, we spend $70 billion a year nationally on corrections. That's not including policing or anything else. That's yeah. just that's just to run the jails and prisons. Oh man. That doesn't and include courts. That doesn't include um, medical costs. Medical, yeah. yeah. But you guys, so you take that and then you take our military expenditures and look at what percentage of our tax dollars are going to basically <laughs> violence yeah. is what it is, you know? Yeah. And you want you wonder why you know, people outside look at the American culture, well, mm -hmm. why do you think you're so violent? Yeah. You know, you don't think there's any correlation between the, what the state is doing, what, what's you going get, on with your, your society? Your parents or? having a bake sale to buy some books for the, the kids' class. I want to see yeah. military men stood on the corner selling cupcakes so they can buy an F-16. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's, oh, that, that's a... Once you start thinking about that, and I don't know, we could probably go forever on the war on drugs and all that sort of stuff too, but I wanna, and I think that's a good segue into the book we're gonna discuss, which is uh, Peter Van Ackmel's Disco Night, September 11th. And we're gonna take a, a look at this and discuss this after we come back from a little break here. All right. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, great.
back. We're back with a, f each have a hello, refresher hello. on our tea. But anyways, we're gonna move on and we're gonna talk about Disco Night, September 11th by Peter Van Acmo. And this is, uh, I guess you could call it an epic book, but it's Peter's basically 10 year, 10 year look at the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq starts. Uh, and here. Yeah, and here. So he, yeah, he started, I mean, he, so he basically follows the war of, you know, going to Afghanistan and Iraq, but then he brings it back home too. And that's some of the most powerful images in the book are definitely the ones where, you know, he's back at home. And so the book is, it's very dense. There's a lot of writing in it too. So this isn't a book where you're just looking at, where you can just browse through and look at the photographs and kind of get it. You have to read the stories. And Peter is actually an incredible writer as well, too. I mean, he's, I mean. Yes, he is. It's just, it's a powerful style. I haven't even been able to read everything because it, it takes a lot out of you. It just makes you feel, yeah. And it's, so he self-published it through Red Hook Editions. Um, Do, does everyone know what Red Hook is? Well, Red Hook Editions is a small publishing house that he started with himself, Jason Eskenazi, and Alan Chin, right? Yep. So they're kind of set out to do, uh, I believe. If those guys. They did Wonderland, right? Like he did Wonderland. Jason did Wonderland, I think. I think maybe retroactively they made that yeah. Red Hook. Um, but yeah, I mean. Think of the expertise there. If those guys can't succeed in self-publishing, what hope is there for anyone else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think universally, it's. Everyone knows it's kind of a difficult. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult industry. It's a difficult. The way thing Jason to explained it to me is that they really just want to. It's not just about them three. It's about their entire community and just bringing sort of like right. expertise to a project to make it as streamlined and easy and supportive for anyone who's got a, a book publishing venture. Right. Um, yeah, they want to leverage account. all the, their expertise in terms of editing layout and concept and design and all that stuff. But So I, I, Peter was in the book that I co-authored, co Photographer Sketchbooks, and I was able to work with Peter and go to his apartment up in Greenpoint and actually look at a lot of his diaries and work prints and all those things. It was amazing. He's just incredibly thorough. So I've had a uh, kind of a different perspective on this or an insider look at it, which we tried to bring into the book mm -hmm. and hopefully it comes through. So when I finally got my hands on it, it was really good to kind of see it all come together. And yeah. I just think it's, it, it, I don't know if this isn't one of the definitive books of that war era, then I don't know, you know, I don't know how you could do it any better or any more thoroughly than he did. I mean, it's not only amazing photographs, and a lot of the photographs aren't going to be your standard, I don't even know what you want to say, like high drama kind of like conflict. He really... There's a surprising amount of even horizons in Peter's work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not a lot of, yeah, not a lot of wonky tilts or, yeah, and it's all in color too, so he's not, um, but yeah, he... You know, and that's, I think, some people might say, well, well these pictures are, are, might be boring, or they're, they're so, you know, uneventful, yeah. but, like, that's kind of how it creeps up on you, you know? Mm -hmm. You get these kind of, yeah, these outside, perif more peripheral perspective, but then, bam, you'll get hit with I think the, the biggest and, problem with the book, and I have to be careful not to use too many superlatives too early here, mm -hmm. is that there are too many very, very good pictures in there that require a lot of attention just on their own. Mm -hmm. And But back to back, you've got hun 
well over a hundred pictures which stand up on their own but as a collection it's um you know spend a week with a book at least yeah um i'll also say that i wrote about this work for wired and that was based on a conversation that peter and i had in a new york park over the summer mm -hmm. and interestingly it was right before isis you know emerged oh, wow. was seemingly almost overnight yeah and so peter didn't have the language, he didn't have ISIS or ISIL or whatever we called it in uh -huh. those early days, uh -huh. um, but he knew something was coming. Right. Um, but I didn't, and, and so um, I think he's, he, to paraphrase, he said, if we look at um, the instability in Western Iraq and we look at the problems in the northern regions, um, I don't think that this war or, or the, the history is written or there's a chapter that's even been closed. Mm. I think it's just the beginning. Mm. And then weeks later, um, we entered this other hyper-violent now um, chapter. Oh, so you're saying he had an inclination that this was developing just from being there on the ground, that there was some, you know, I mean, bad, I, bad stuff coming in. I was asking Peter for sort of like definitive statements mm -hmm. about like, what Iraq did and, and where it's at now and how he fits into it and, and what our political um, conclusions should be. And he was like, it's not about that. Like, all I can do is present my personal um, observations and experience and document of a time. Mm -hmm. But like, that's just inserted into an ongoing <laughs> history that's yeah. much bigger, um, which, you know, translates his modesty, and I think that's another but admirable think, quality to the project. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, he's very specific, I think, you know, it's also a coming-of-age book. You know, he, this 9-11 happened when he was in college, I believe, and this is all right when he's growing up and becoming an adult, and this is him entering into the world, and he's like, what, you know? So there's also that, that theme of him coming of age and becoming an adult and seeing the world and, like, you know, and I think that's very important that he, you know, he centers it and frames it as, like, you know, this is my part of my journey, you know. Yeah. And I think that to me is like, again, you talk about the modesty or the humility of it, that he doesn't, you know, he's, he's seen it, you know, for the first time. You know, he's not, he's not Don McCall. He's not this aged war veteran photographer, you know, who's, who's seen it all before. He hasn't, you know. And I, I yeah, I... I can't even imagine, you know, like I remember seeing him speak one time and he was just like, he, he was so sober and he's like, I, I don't want to die. And you could tell he's like, if I go back and do this, I might die. I've seen people die. He's like, I don't want to, I don't want to go and do this. So he had that real, seemed to have that real conflict within himself of like, he's compelled to go and do it, but he doesn't want He's like, is it worth dying, you know? And I think there's a, that conversation kind of bubbled up the last couple of years ago. Is it really worth sending these people into these war zones to mm. die to bring back what? Mm. What are we looking at, you know? Or who's even looking at it? Who's even looking at it, yeah. I mean, there's been some, some writing about how we have to kind of confront these images, but, you know, I don't think... I mean, even with the ISIS beheadings, we pretty much everyone universally should ignore that. We don't. Who needs to see that, right? But do we? You know, if we turn, well, what should we be looking at? Should we be turning away from it? I don't know. Well, the thing is, like, I don't think there's anything instructive in ISIS's propaganda. No. It's it's aimed to do one thing, and it's a sharp hell of a shock. Whereas there's plenty that's instructive about Peter and other photojournalists right. who, who are coming back with 
um, well thought out, well shot, well edited bodies of work. Right. Um, and there's no one who I um, don't respect that doesn't put this and a couple of other books, um, I'd say Christoph Bangert's War Porn, mm. um, up there as being important contributions and, and sort of like maybe shifting the usual type of imagery we get from, from war photography. Right. I'm using that phrase loosely. Um, did you see Robert King's um, book about Syria? No. Oh, What's that about? It's basically just like, I don't know, 150, 170 pages of blood gore and it's it's just like being beaten with a stick, except of course not. That does, that's what it right. sounds sick and wrong. Um, but it doesn't make you want to investigate the issue, it makes you want to turn away from the issue. Mm -hmm. I think with Peter's work, there's, there's a lot more complexity and nuance and, yeah. and there's, there's space for you to get involved. It's in. kind of a similar problem with uh, prison awareness too. It's mm -hmm. not something people necessarily want to jump into and really look at. Right. And someone said a thing interesting to me yesterday. There was like, there isn't a photograph of a person in a cell in Prison Obscura. Mm -hmm. And it, it never occurred to me, but they were right. Um, and I was like, wonderful. Well, that's probably going to be a surprise <laughs> to people. Yeah, and, yeah. And, huh. um, but yeah, I mean, prison imagery is difficult and it's particularly difficult for access-wise for photographers to humanize the it's, population. But do you think, and I think that kind of ties into visual literacy, do you think we are becoming more literate visually? Or, or um, I guess, how do you measure it? I don't know. I was know. gonna say, you how know, do you measure it? How do you measure that? But I, I would like to say so, just because like we see more images, we're fed more images, most of them are trying to sell us shit, but. Right. Um, we do interact with more images daily than, say, our parents' generation. Um, I'm not sure whether, like, it's an innate evolution that we become better at reading them, though. Right, mm. right. We could, you could argue we get more docile and they just wash over us and, um, and we don't apply any critical thought to them. Right, a more um, passive experience. Yeah, I mean, I think what I've found dealing with prison images is that you do have to wrap a context around them and... and, and explain something to people, especially if it's the first time they see it. Right. Um, and I encourage people to be like more conscientious viewers. Like accept that, that it's not the photographer or whoever that is manufacturing the image. It's not their role to just put it out there and then, and then you take it as is. Right. Um, you need to look at what the motives are involved in its manufacturing distribution. Mm -hmm. um, and, and approach it with some sort of like critical thought, I guess. So that's kind of hard on the internet. I mean, this is one of the, one of the reasons we're sitting in here conversing about this because oh, I got I got frustrated with kind of the dialogue that you have on the internet or lack of dialogue, tweeting back and forth for an hour. I'm like, whatever. I don't want to do that. I have no interest in it. Or back in the day where you'd have somebody write a blog post and you disagree with them, and then you'd go and write your own blog post, and you'd have like this two or three day back and forth, and I'm like. That doesn't, to me, that doesn't feel like a conversation. So that's kind of the impetus for doing the podcast. Like, if we're going to say the conversation and thinking about it critically is important, well, then I want to sit and actually have the conversation with the people. Yeah. Because an actual conversation when you're talking about this is messy. You say some stupid stuff, like I say, you know, and how do you, you know, that's mm -hmm. part of conversation and thinking about this stuff. So I, that that's, well, that's kind of why we're here, I think. I mean, well, you know, both you and I, circulate images. Um, I have a, a, a degree to 
as well as writing articles, um, total control on prison photography, uh, some control on Wired with early edits, um, more control on Medium with full edits, um, and with the Marshall Project. And with all my clients, I'm pitching stories with images attached that I want to write about. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's certain things that are going to get seen or not seen based upon <laughs> what, right. I'm, what I'm looking at right, and, right. And, and valuing. Um, but in the case of Peter's book, um, he sent me the PDF and I did like a really broad edit um, of maybe like 30 or 40 pictures. Mm -hmm. And then the request from my bosses at Wired were, let's pick the most surreal. Okay. Which, say, which says a lot because we want to talk about how this is a different project right. uh, in the genre of, of war photography. And I think the idea was if you pick the most surreal stuff and then you put war in the headline, <laughs> that dissonance will get right. people at least taking notes. Yeah. Um, there's a great picture in there of uh, dust blowing up uh -huh. after the inauguration of Obama in January 2009 yeah. and people are huddled and it looks like one of those classic shots where a helicopter is taken off in Vietnam or the desert and the dust is going up and people are taking cover. And if you're just flicking through the book, you're like, oh yeah, standard war shot, uh -huh. but it's not, it's taken on the mall in Washington. Right, and you can right, just see yeah. faintly the, um, <laughs> yeah. the, the memorial in the background. And I think he's very clever, very yeah. clever. So that's the, yeah. I wish the internet would do something about its headlines, especially in terms of photography. And Ralph File is one of my one of my favorites to pick on every now and again. Um, yeah, yeah, we do it in private though. But I mean, I understand. You know, I work on the web. I'm there. I know you got to sell it. In. But it, to me, it goes. You know, there are a lot of photography projects are sold in the headline. I think we have to know? accept and say now that most people who write an article. Uh, have no control over the headline right. that's put at the top of it if they're writing for a big publication. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's it's what works. You got to do what works. Yeah. You know, and it's but it's been interesting to see that evolution because I've you know watched it from where you would, could put specifically the photographer's name in the headline and say you know the name of the book, but now it's not. You get right to the photographer takes pictures of you yeah. know, elderly people, I don't know, in the, bathing, uh, whatever. Feature shoot does a lot of that stuff. You, you need to do, that. yeah. Maybe that's something that you and I and Blake can do. Um, do a word search for stunning on feature shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm a big fan of what Allison does. She's really savvy. She's really savvy at what she does. And I remember at one time I did talk to about like, you know, I might have even made a comment of like I got to know what's what photos I'm looking at in the headline or something. But you, I, you, there's a distinct kind of evolution of those. But it, it follows along with all of the internet and like we're in the Twitter age. If you're not selling it in those 140 characters, forget about it. You know? Yeah, and and I know from being in that that those things pay off. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. yeah. Like, f phenomenally, clicks yeah. will increase when you, when you deliver the formula. And yeah. so I understand from a media um, logic why it's done. I, I mean, but then that's, that's sort of like encourages as, as independent publishers online or, or in print to do the opposite. Can be, uh, no our space. Can be pretty dangerous, too. A friend of mine was writing for a weekly newspaper in Virginia, 
had a headline changed by his editor, and it, it kind of changed the whole context of the story and like who was involved, and he found himself involved in a libel lawsuit because of it. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it eventually like fell on the editor who changed the headline on him, but that's the kind of thing that could happen. Yeah. What I mean, we, we love a good libel lawsuit in the photo world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually want to see more of those so yeah. we, can all, we can all sort of like, um, get wound up. And, yeah. uh, Do you ever read the comments, the Raphael comments? God, no. No. And probably once every month or two, um, I'll get an email from a photographer who'll be like, I really like the piece, but... <sighs> Wow, these comments, and I, and I write straight back. I'm like, this is my advice to anyone. Like, don't read the comments. Yeah. <laughs> well, I follow a Twitter account that's called Don't Read the Comments, and they send you a reminder like every day, don't read the comments. <laughs> they do it in a very clever way. Remember, don't read the comments. Yeah. So I mean, but you actually dragged me into that circle of hell when you guys republished the uh, 10 photographers you should ignore. And that was really the only time I've ever been just taken to task and like... Yeah, but that's because people didn't understand it was humor. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. And what, so what's funny about that too is like in the context of where I originally shared it for that audience, everyone got it right away. Nobody, can, nobody commented on the LPV blog and said it because they're like, ha ha, we get it, you get yeah. it. But then when you take it out to a broader audience, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, yeah. you know. And I'll, given what certain amount of abuse people take on the web, this was very mild, so I'm not going to get all dramatic about it. But it was really kind of the only time where I've had directly insulted and like people go to my website and like <laughs> making fun of me. Well, I think so that's mean. a case where the headline said it all. Yeah. And like you know, you, you're on one side or the other immediately, okay. and then. Um, but I did it. All, it was all intentionally. I was trying. Uh -huh. It's like you get with you know. But I don't think people read it with enough like critical thought and no. like uh, and read it maybe a second time and had to think about whether their first reaction was, you know, which is the same thing we, yeah. we're asking people to do when they approach images. Yeah. Because like, it's actually a homage. I mean, it's saying like these guys are really yeah. so influential that you should, you know, that they've kind of created their own genres almost. <laughs> but anyways. But yeah, I mean, when yeah. I first started writing for Wired in like 2009, 2010, I did read the comments and then I realized it was a thankless task. Um, Plain and simple, I don't think there's anything else <laughs> yeah, I can yeah, say yeah, about yeah. that. See, I don't, you know, I, I would never go in and comment on the story because I don't want to deal with those people. If I do it, if I have something critical to say, I normally take it into private conversations that I have these days, or I'll tweet it and say something snarky on Twitter well, or even on Facebook. You've kind of created your own networks in that way and right. places where you can share certain yeah. ideas and not have it exposed to the entire internet. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm not dismissive. Like, I like a good funny comment. Yeah. I just had a piece published um, last week for Medium, which was Debbie Cornwall's photographs from Guantanamo, mm. and a lot of the comments were like, "I can't believe we've given up our American values," you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then a comment just came in yesterday saying, "The other thing we surrendered with Guantanamo was our ability to use language properly." <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> And I did reread the yeah. article. I was like, actually, I could sympathize. Like, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't my most fluent piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but you. So you have an interesting relationship with on the web because you know you. It seems like you've built up a big audience on Twitter. You're up twenty some thousand followers on Twitter, but also on Instagram. 
So how the heck did this happen? Oh, we're all really happy to talk about this. Because you, <laughs> so they promoted you, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got, yeah. what, what, 50, 60,000 so, followers uh, or whatever it is? I'd been on Instagram uh, maybe six months, maybe less. Uh -huh. And I was just, I was doing a series called Portland Painted Green. It was when I lived in Portland. I just photographed things that were green, yeah. mainly houses and cars. And then for one day I was sat in front of my computer and this email came in and it was like, congratulations, you're on our suggested user list. Mm -hmm. And it was like very paternalistic in tone. <laughs> it, was, it was like, please show our Instagram users uh, what it means to like be a good community member um, and then enjoy all the new thousands of followers that you will get. Oh, wow. And so I went from having 800 followers to having 23,800 oh, in the man. space of two weeks. And I know people who've been on that suggested user list for months, um, in the early days, more than a year. Mm -hmm. um, but two weeks is the minimum, and then the two weeks arrived and they cut me off. Oh, and it was because really? I started like um, contacting them. I was like, I would like to write a story about this because it's pretty strange that like these 12-year-old kids in Malaysia uh -huh. are like following me and like all these like accounts that I don't think are actual people. Um, and all I asked Instagram, I was like, how do you do it? Do you like, do you take anonymous suggestions from users, from staff? Do you have a conversation over your Friday morning coffee? Do you have a whiteboard? I was like, how does it work? <laughs> right. And they were just like, we, we just like to promote people whose practices were like, very like, just ending the yeah. conversation, really. And, may, and I don't know, maybe they didn't have time for me, but I was saying, like, you know, I'm a writer and, and one of my clients is wired. I thought they might have been interested, right. but yeah. um, they were owned by Facebook at that point, so, so not. And then over a couple of years, it dropped down to like 21,000, um, 20,000, 19,000, which was fine, which, you know. And then Right before Instagram did its own call mm -hmm. last month, a month before, I did my own call with a third-party app. Oh, okay. Mm. And in the space of two weeks, it just got rid of all the accounts that uh, never interacted, and it dropped down to like 4,000, which is where I'm at now. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so you cut, wow. Yeah. But this is so but not, those, those are people who have yeah, not liked, active. viewed, yeah. or commented on any of my photographs for like 120 days right. or more. So they're all just like... You can kick, you can kick followers to the curb? You can, you can make them unfollow you? The, the app that I used was called IG Exorcist, mm -hmm. and what it does is it blocks and unblocks them. So it doesn't, oh. so they can follow you again if they're real, but obviously the ones that are called aren't real. Okay, huh. interesting. And, um, you know, IG Exorcist's tagline is Instagram is about people, not numbers. <laughs> And yeah, I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I felt like I was a fraud carrying around, you know, these thirteen thousand fake sure. followers that that didn't reflect a reach because yeah. I still get the same number of likes on so, the images. Yeah. I Some mean, people I, actually bought those too. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always tell people, and this is you know my job is like if you actually look at the analytics in terms of engagement on your social media, it will take you. Yeah. Five minutes to realize how much of a fraud this is. Like, I could put out a link on Twitter to 20,000 people, and if I get 50 wow. clicks on that, I'm, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, average is like, so I'm putting out links there that literally no one is, they're reading. So it's like, why not just write the tweets? That's why some of the most popular people are the people that are just blabbering all day on Twitter, and like, because you want to hear controversial things or you want to hear opinion. I don't think, it's a very small minority of people that use Twitter as like an old RSS, which is basically what I use it as. It's like, bring me the news, you know? Right. I want to see what's going on. So yeah, you start digging into those analytics and you realize how much of it is 
Inflated. Inflated, yeah. But I actually deleted my old Instagram because I wanted to start fresh, and there's no way to just delete all your photos. They kind of make that impossible. So, yeah. And I only had like 2,000 followers, and I was like, whatever, I'll, this doesn't mean anything, whatever. And I was, So I just deleted the whole thing, and I thought like, oh, it should be kind of easy to rebuild. It's not, man. <laughs> like you start back to zero, and it's kind of like, but like that's kind of, you know, you got to rebuild the thing. and. So do you, but do you consider yourself a photographer as well too? Because you take good pictures. I mean, I like your pictures. Uh, I don't, no. You don't? Um, I mean, in as much, if everyone's a photographer, then yeah, I'm a photographer. Mm-hmm. But I like to um, encourage people to think that maybe photographers are people who um, spend a lot of time and thought and money and effort and, and have something right. better than like a iPhone 5 with a, <laughs> with a knackered lens. Like, yeah. Um, I have to angle it so it takes oh. out the marks that are on my lens, so it doesn't. So I can't take any pictures in a white cube gallery. You'll see all the all the scratches on my right. lens. Um, and people who work on stories for months or years, you know, those are photographers. Um, people who are really crafting images and like and thinking about the medium as as um, as something that reaches a broader audience than just like an iPhone. Picture. But do you like taking pictures? I mean, you enjoy it. A part um, of it. I mean, do you, th- do you I think, think I think it's healthy to keep your head up when you're walking around? Yeah. I like taking pictures on the street because uh-huh. you know I, I do. I pay attention to um, architecture and signs mm. and and just like um, street art, weird, weird stuff that yeah. like you possibly wouldn't pay attention to. But you're looking at colors and shapes, yeah. and I think it's a good way to engage with the world. Yeah. But do you think it actually informs your understanding of the way photography works? I, I stumped him, man. <laughs> I've been stumped him. Because I've always felt like that's, you know, I consider myself a photographer, and I think, you know, it's always helped me kind of better understand being on the inside of the, the, the me- mechanics. Of it, it, the, the leap seems too big for me to take. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we do try and mimic the very flat, quirky, American street scene mm-hmm. that people do with a medium format and a right. million of years. Right. We do try and mimic the like blurry picture of like the the dogs or the old person on the street mm-hmm. um, and put it in black and white. I think I think it's more like perhaps we're just playing around and trying to see with um, a small phone camera and a limited number of filters how close we can get to that, those type of images we've yeah. admired a long time. Yeah. And after a while, you realize that you you, you need some better kit. I do want to say one thing about Twitter and Instagram and all of that, though. Um, my career does exist because of the internet. Mm. Um, but I am by no way an acolyte, and daily I am freaked out by how exposed I am because of the internet. If you wanted to know about me, you could find out a hell of a lot yeah. just by spending a lot of time on my social media. I deleted mm-hmm. Facebook last year. It's one of the best decisions I've ever done. Hmm. But there's nothing to say I'm not putting stuff on Instagram that's as um, exposing, revealing. Um, but yeah, I do, I, I do wonder daily if there's a way that could just cut all that out and then survive as a human being in this world. And I don't think there is. I don't think there is. I mean, I know 100% for whatever I'm doing, I can't, you know, this is my 
this is this is my value to capital, right? You know what I mean? This is this is what I can do. You know, so like I, could, I could write on paper and deliver to the offices in downtown San Francisco right. once a week, um, but I wouldn't have the internet to find out what's happening yeah, in the yeah, world yeah. in order to yeah. know what to write about. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't. I try to not to be controversial or say I try. You know. This is one of the reasons, again, that I like the podcast, too, because you have to invest an hour to sit here and listen to people. The biggest thing the internet does sometimes, I think, is it overinflates kind of your, your sense of, you know, who you are, what you're really doing, when in reality, there's probably not that many people that are paying attention to you as you really think there are, yeah. you know? It's not like Kim Kardashian or the... People are writing for BuzzFeed, I guess. Yeah, it's probably like, just one step down from Kim Carter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've got a question for you. How do you pick your books or your conversation topics? Why did you go for Peter Van Agmel today? Um, well, one thing is sometimes the guests will bring the book and then we'll discuss whatever they have or they'll bring two or three. And I, you know, it's the basically I want the books that I've bought recently that are kind of on the top of my consciousness that I want to discuss. And I brought this just because I figured, you know, a, we haven't talked about it yet, and I think we have done the spreads for it. Um, but B, I knew you'd known Peter and like you're, you know, for yeah. very familiar with the work and could speak intelligently about it. And C, since you know we're talking about prisons and all that stuff, we might as well just mix in the war. Just, and admit, just keep it really bleak. Keep it really bleak. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think this was a bleak conversation. You know, well, as much as he was involved in the writing um, and the editing. The thing he said to me, which very early on was like, I got a designer. Mm. Um, and anyone who knows anything about photo books I've talked to um, has said, get a designer. Yeah. Um, don't, don't, don't presume that like, other people in the world can't grasp the work as you do. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, their distance will probably benefit you. And so the, the other great success of the book is that it manages to put together so much work and so many words, but in a way that's not overwhelming. Like it's broken into these mini chapters almost. Um, and I think that's down to the design. And, you know, Peter went out and consciously made a decision to employ someone to deliver that for the project and I think it works it's, it's evident yeah and I think that's a great piece of advice to end the show on Pete thanks man yeah thanks this is a great here. conversation thank you I hope I didn't ramble too much no no no, no, no. thanks for having me yeah. lovely place yeah thank you we appreciate your support and hope you continue to enjoy the show if you have any questions please feel free to send them to info at lpvshow.com or connect with us on twitter at lpvshow show. 